Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Omar Bader, who's a journalist. He's an expert on Israel-Palestine. He's been a friend of mine for a while. I really respect his work, so definitely looking forward to talking to him and getting into all of the the weeds of what's happening in Gaza right now. Of course, it's every day it gets worse and worse, and I've been doing long segments about it on Secular Talk. I know you have on Breaking Points oh, as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, just the continuation of that. So if you want all the updates, stay right there. We'll get into all of it. But before we do that, Crystal, I'm going to hand it off to you in a second. There's this really interesting article in Axios where it looks like Democrats are plotting, scheming behind the scenes uh, intentionally where the DNC is like, hey, we might have to replace Biden, so everybody, all systems go, all yeah. you governors. So you've got a whole bunch of Democrats across the country who are making moves, and they would say, oh, it's for 2028. But there's also this caveat of like, well, if something happens with Biden, like we'll be kind of ready and in place. Um, the headline here, the tweet that they sent on is new, Dems are quietly making moves to succeed Biden, national PACs, Cory Booker to South Carolina this month, foreign resume building trips, swing state fundraisers, all likely for 2028, but also a hedge for 2024, a just in case invisible primary. Um, they talk in the article about Gretchen Whitmer has a PAC, J.B. Pritzker has a PAC, Josh Shapiro is out there making moves, I think going to New Hampshire. I'm sure Gavin Newsom, of course, has been not so quiet about his ambitions. Um, Cory Booker also making moves. Ro Khanna gets a nod as well. So uh, a lot of angling here for whoever is going to be next. And also, Kyle, like very clear, there's no respect whatsoever for the idea that Kamala Harris is going to be the next in line anointed um, candidate. Yeah. So when you dive into the specifics here, it's interesting. I think some of the people who they list might genuinely be thinking about 2028. Like, yeah. I think Ro Khanna is under no illusion that he's going to hop in the race in 2024 and end up being the nominee. Um, but when you look at other ones, when you look at, like, you know, Gavin Newsom, J.B. Pritzker, people like that, you think, oh, no, they're they're plotting on purpose for 2024. And it's almost like and I'll be interested to get your thoughts on this. If, like, the word comes down from DNC leadership, like we give you the green light, it's like, will they jump in and try to just usurp Biden? Because I think we're at that point now, especially when you look at the fact he just dropped another 11 points with Democrats mm -hmm. hemorrhaging Arab American, Arab American and Muslim American voters hemorrhaging young people. We're like teetering on the brink right now. We're getting really late in the game where I think somebody like Newsom, all he needs is one go ahead from the DNC. And it's like, all right, I'm in it. Do you agree with that? I already think we're past the point of no return, to be really? honest with you. Yeah, I do. I, I think, you know, there continues to be this wish casting among the D.C. press corps who, for one thing, they just think it's boring that it's going to be Biden again and they want to write a more interesting story. For another thing, like, they can read the polls, they can see the verbal and mental de decline. Like, they're not fools. They can see all of this. And, you know, they'd love to imagine a Pete Buttigieg or a Cory Booker or whatever really having a shot at things this time around. They love to fan the flames of this kind of, like, you know, palace intrigue and drama. But do I think there's any chance that he would drop out at this late date? No, I don't. I think that ship has really sailed. Some of the ballot deadlines um, in terms of uh, Democratic primary have already come and gone. Like, Really? I thought yeah. that it was like a week that's or two why, away. That's why Jenk was, you know, getting in the race when he did, because there were certain ballot deadlines that were like imminent. So I don't see it. And I've always thought, even if, you know, 
if they could possibly pull Biden across the line, they would stick with him because there is power to an incumbent presidency because they're terrified of democracy and who might, you know, emerge out of an actual democratic process. And so they'd rather stick with this incredibly lame horse they've got than open it up to a messy primary process. The crazy thing is, there is a very decent chance Biden, for whatever reason, any of a number of reasons, yeah. can't actually make it to Election Day. In which case, now the only options you have are Joe Biden, Marianne Williamson, Cenk Uger, kind of maybe asterisks because there's going to be court cases challenging his ability to even right. run because he's a naturalized citizen, and Dean Phillips, mm -hmm. which means if Biden steps aside... All the king's horses and all the king's men and the entire media structure and the entire Democratic Party infrastructure would start propping up Dean Phillips. Yeah. And we might see <laughs> Dean Phillips versus Donald Trump for president of the United States. Well, it all depends on when that would happen, right? Because if it happened after Biden already had clinched the nomination, then instead you end up with Kamala Harris on the ticket. And, um, you know, I don't think that would go particularly well. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's uh, it's very clear that the vultures are are circling, right? They want to line themselves up. They want to keep a little just in case for 2024 in there so that they could at a moment's notice do their best best to swoop in. But I think realistically, we're looking at 2028. I honestly, I, I really think this kind of 2024 wish casting ship has sailed. That's interesting. I do see it a little different. I do think it's like a, this is the insurance policy. And they're maybe even expecting to need to use the insurance policy. So that's how I view it. But we'll see what happens uh, if Biden survives. All right. So <laughs> so now now this we transition to something that's honestly even more serious. So oh, yeah. obviously you had the October 7th terror attack that Hamas did against innocent civilians in Israel. And since then, what we've seen is just we snapped right back into 2003 style hysteria. Everybody remembers what it was like on like 9, 12, 2001. Uh, and for, for years after that, everything was hysteria and mania and we need retribution and retaliation and revenge. And everybody kind of turned their brains off and was acting very emotionally. And um, what's interesting is that in this instance, that reaction is not just happening in Israel. It's also happening in the United States of America. Now, we're going to talk more about this with Omar Badr. We'll get into um, interesting details on this front. But I wanted to talk about this resolution that just passed the House. So the way it's being labeled, the way it's being discussed is a Hamas sanctions bill. Now, stop and think about that. You're a congressperson and there's a Hamas sanctions bill that comes up. What's your instinctual reaction? Vote yes, vote yes, vote yes, vote yes. Mm -hmm. But in reality, when you get to the specifics, it's a Hamas sanctions bill and an Iran resolution. And when you get into the details, as uh, is pointed out here on Twitter by Michael Tracy using the text of the bill, one of the provisions of this bill is that the U.S. will use, quote, all means necessary to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. All means necessary. All huh? means necessary. So in other words, well, let's start with the obvious here. We had the perfect solution to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. It was called the Iran uh, peace agreement that Obama and John Kerry negotiated. And according to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Iran followed that that agreement to a T over a dozen times when they went in to verify it. <clears throat> Trump gets in there, rips it up. Biden runs for president, and says, I'll get us back in it. He gets in office. He doesn't get us back in it. Now, all of a sudden, they're passing a hawkish bill where they're like, if we determine that we think you're on the, the verge of getting a nuclear weapon, we'll go to war against you. So the point here is this looks like laying the groundwork for 
Israel's bombing campaign continues in Gaza. Hezbollah might jump in more directly. Iran might jump in more directly. Assad in Syria might jump in more directly. And this now gives us the pretext to go, we don't need a new resolution voting to to uh, forthrightly declare war with mm -hmm. Iran. Yeah. We already passed this resolution that says all means necessary to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. And all you need to do is say they're this close. Yeah. So we have to do it. And so basically in the dead of night, in the hysteria after this attack, they're laying the groundwork for another endless war. And in this case, it would be far, far worse than Iraq. It would be a way worse war than Iraq. Anyway, your thoughts? They've also laid out the legal justification for, um, you know, another path they could take here, which is that um, we've got American troops in the region. They're already coming under threat from uh, Iranian proxies like Hezbollah. And so since our people are under threat, that gives them the green light to act for a certain period of time without even going to Congress. So they've already laid out that legal justification, both in articles and already in, you know, some of the official actions that the White House has taken. I just would urge everyone, we put this up on the screen during the Breaking Point show, take a look at all of the military assets, Haaretz had a great map of this, that have been moved into this region. It is astonishing. Um, you now have three U.S. naval groups in the Mideast. You have them planning for a range of possibilities, which could go from, you know, just serving as a deterrent. We're just here. So, you know, you guys think twice about what you're going to do to being engaged in an all-out regional war or to, you know, having to quickly evacuate our citizens from the region in an event of a regional war. We've already told Israel that if Hezbollah fully opens up another front, that yes, we would get directly involved in the hostilities. So, you know, this is an incredibly uh, dangerous and, you know, very possible reality. And when you see resolutions like this flying through the House under this new House speaker who is a total, like, religious fanatic, Christian Zionist who, you know, has already been on the phone with Netanyahu, et cetera. And you hear also things, you know, the justifications that are being given in terms of, did you see this guy, Brian Mast? He's the one that wore the IDF uniform. Yeah, he said Palestinians are Nazis. Yeah. And, and that there are no innocent Palestinians. I mean, the level of rhetoric is so terrifying and yes, so reminiscent of post 9-11. And let's also be clear about this. There's a million articles out there now saying Iran linked uh, militia attacked United States, Iran linked, right. Iran linked. And that is all towards the same goal, which is at a moment's notice, we could jump in and attack Iran and say, well, it was defensive. It was defensive. The fact of the matter is the connections are uh, far wider than, than they make it seem, right? Like when we're talking about Hezbollah, they are a non-state militia in Lebanon. They are their own thing. Are they allies with Iran? Absolutely. But the idea that there's like a one-to-one connection there is just not remotely true. And even we saw this with the Hamas attack too. all these articles, Wall Street Journal came out and said Iran was actually directing this and helping them mm -hmm. set up for it. Well, guess what? Come to find out the U.S. intelligence agencies had information that Iran was shocked by the scope and the scale of the Hamas terror attack. Right. So there was it was not that they were involved in the planning of it. Again, I want to be clear. They are allies. So, yeah, there were com uh, there was commentary coming out from Iran like, you know, we support our brothers in Hezbollah standing up to the Zionists or whatever. Like mm -hmm. they made commentary like that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that they were directly involved in it is not true. And so now every time you see Iran linked, Iran linked, Iran linked, understand the game that's being played. It is very similar to. After 9-11, first we invaded Afghanistan, and then they had to build the case, build the case. We got to go into Iraq. We got to go into Iraq.
Iraq. Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein was working with Osama mm-hmm. bin Laden. None of that was true, but they didn't care because the, the goal was already set beforehand that we want to topple Iraq. It was in that list of the different countries that the neocons wanted to topple. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. Iran is on that list. By the way, Yemen, long been on that Yemen already came out. The Houthis in Yemen already came out and said, we're declaring war on Israel and they're launching missiles against them. But they're not saying we're, we need to go uh, topple Yemen. But hold on, by your own logic, you're saying if somebody attacks Israel, the U.S. is going to jump in. But you didn't say Yemen. Why? Because that's not the one, one of the countries that's on the list. That's not Yemen the big is a, Yeah, Yemen is a poor, well, technically they are our enemy, but Saudi Arabia, if anything, they were bombing them relentlessly. And the U.S. mindset is, if Saudi wants to get back in and start bombing Yemen, by all means, go right ahead. We're not going to waste our time. They're a rinky-dick country. They're one of the poorest countries in the world. They don't share a border with Israel. So... It, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. But that just rips the mask off of, oh, wait, are you thought you were going to jump in to protect Israel? No, they had these plans beforehand. They wanted to topple Iran for the longest time. It's on the list of countries that the neocons said, well, this is one of the ones we want to topple. Yeah. When I went on with News Nation and, um, you know, it got heated over Israel, Palestine, whatever. And the guest before me was John Bolton. And this was in the early days after this um, yeah, like a week offensive after. on Gaza had just started. And already... He was, I mean, forthrightly making the case for war with Iran. And, you know, the Lindsey Grahams of the world, like, they're already out there. They were immediately out there pushing hostilities with Iran and trying to tie Iran to the Hamas attacks and also trying to make this case that, like, you know, what Hamas did to Israel, like, that they have global jihadist ambitions and this is a security threat to us as well. Total bullshit. Which is total bullshit. But that's, again, the same justifications that were used in, you know, the war on terror. And there with more, you know, with more there there than when you're talking about just Hamas. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a replay. You can just see it all unfolding so clearly. And that initial Wall Street Journal report that came out that was like, oh, Iran was involved in the planning, which one of the reporters, it's astonishing she even still has like a career because apparently she's discredited for previous reporting. But that was debunked by, that was disputed by not only American intelligence, but also Israeli intelligence. But you still hear these hawks hanging on to that reporting because they desperately need to make that link for this war that they've been, you know, horny for for decades now at this point. And let's be clear, they also rely on the ignorance of the broader public to make these arguments. Mm -hmm. So when they say something like Iran or jihadists and they're the number one state sponsor of terror, this is something you hear all the time. You need to know nothing about the Middle East in order to believe that hook, line and sinker. Because the fact of the matter is Iran is a Shia theocracy. Now, that's not good. It's not a good thing to be any kind of a theocracy. But they're a Shia theocracy. (laughs) The jihadists are Sunni extremists. They're Salafists. The derogatory term is Wahhabists. Mm -hmm. That's That's who the jihadists are. There's much more of an ideological connection between Saudi Arabia and jihadists and global jihad, ISIS, Al Qaeda, etc. Then there is ISIS and Al Qaeda, for example, are mortal enemies of Iran. This is something people need to understand. Also, the right is relying on people not knowing anything to make arguments like there's Hamas cells and Hezbollah cells that have come into the U.S. through the southern border. If you think there's a Hamas sleeper cell in the U.S. or a Hezbollah sleeper, you literally know absolutely nothing. They are not like ISIS. They are not like Al Qaeda. They have very, very different goals, a very, very different ideology. And they just rely on people's ignorance to scare them into, uh, okay, listen to the neocons fight. You got to go save us. Right. Like that's that's the goal. That's the argument they try to build. And now they have the backing of the U.S. government that gives them the green light. 
hey, we already passed a resolution that says any means necessary in order to defeat uh, mm -hmm. Iran in order to make it so they don't get a weapon. And it is bad. And then, by the way, the only politicians who are standing up and doing the right thing every step of the way here are the ones who are smeared and maligned the most. Relentlessly. It's the Rashida Tlaibs of the world and the Cory Bushes and the AOCs and randomly now the Thomas Masseys because he's like the Ron Paul of this generation. Yeah. He's like a principled libertarian. Yeah. And th these people are getting hammered by APAC, by the corporate wings of their own party. And it's it's so gross, man. Oh, it's so gross. But look, for the first time in a long time, I'm at least proud of a lot of the Justice Democrats who are there for actually doing the yeah. right thing, right? And let me say, like, it's, uh, I, I really appreciate, you know, Rashida and Ilhan and everybody who signed on to the ceasefire um, demand and also who voted against some of these resolutions. I want to give a special shout out to Summer Lee and to Jamal Bowman, who I know will be put in significant electoral jeopardy. Bowman's district is very, chair. very Jewish. He has a very Jewish district. Yeah. And he's come under fire before for his, you know, just like basic support of Palestinian humanity. Summer Lee almost lost her last race because of APAC and the Democratic Majority for Israel, DMFI. I forgot about that group. Came, oh, and they're already funding primary challengers against a number of um, Democratic members explicitly over this issue and the levels of dishonesty they will stoop to as well. They have an ad against Tlaib. They just dropped an ad against Tlaib. Have you watched it? I, I didn't watch, watch it yet, yet, but I know it's all, you know, the, uh, the typical arguments. So anti-Semite, hates Israel, not like blah, blah, blah. This is safe for them. No. You know, not at all. This is very politically perilous. There are a lot of risks for sticking your neck out in favor of like just the basic humanity of Palestinians. And there's a lot to be gained from taking the Fetterman approach, which is exactly why he's doing what he's doing. What Let's a make loser. No mistake. Everybody turned on him like that. As it's soon as he say, as soon as he was like, so I co-signed genocide, everybody's like, put on a suit, you fucking slob. <laughs> You're like, lovable oaf bit is now yeah, dead and gone. Like, we're put done. on a suit, you son of a bitch. Yeah, I well, saw everybody flip like that. To, to tie this very quickly back to the first story about uh, Ro Khanna and others who are positioning themselves for president, like, that's why he's being, you know, really super bad and lame on this issue is because he knows how difficult it would be for him to ever be president of the United States if he actually took a courageous stand on yeah, this. Because there, so there's ideological conformity among these U.S. politicians. So to a certain extent, it's ideological, but there are also massive financial incentives, especially on this issue. When it comes to DMFI, when it comes to APAC, even J Street, when it comes to all, they, they said, if you're for a ceasefire, we're going to primary you. J yeah. Street said that. They're supposed to be the they're, liberal. They're supposed to be like the, the progressive. The liberal Israel group. Right. Yeah. My ass cheeks. So anyway, you got all this money and they will be directly involved in politics and primaries. They will fund your opponent and your ass is in serious trouble if you're being outspent two to one, three to one, four to one, ten to one. And so it's, it's very, it makes it very difficult for these politicians. You have to actually have a moral core. And yeah. be willing to fight on it. And there is no countervailing force on the other side. No, there's there not, it's not no, like care has a big lobbying arm, no, right? No, there's no super PAC, you know, pro-Palestinian super PAC ready to intervene and back you in your primary that doesn't exist, sadly. So, yeah, it's very asymmetric landscape. And that's why you see almost unanimous, like, uniformity on this issue for so long. Yeah. So uh, with all that being said, let's go ahead and introduce our guest. Here's journalist and expert on the issue, Omar Bader. All right, guys, I'd like to welcome in Omar Bader. He's here. He is uh, an expert who I've relied on for a lot of stuff to learn about this conflict for a very long time. So thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate yeah, it. Great to see you in person, Omar. Of course. Omar. Yep. Great to be here with you. So let me give some updates. Um, I've been covering this 
nonstop every detail uh, on my show, and I know you have on Breaking Points as well. So just to give everybody updates, as of the recording of this right now, this will drop tomorrow, so these numbers will be a little out of date, but I want to give everybody a sense of where we're at at the moment. So at least 9,061 people have been killed by Israeli airstrikes on Gaza since October 7th, including 3,760 children. Uh, Israeli forces say that dozens of Hamas fighters were killed in overnight operations. That's quite in line with what we learned early on, that uh, even on after the first week of airstrikes, the confirmed number of Hamas fighters who were dead was 13, with about 6,000 civilians at the time. Uh, Joe Biden has now said there should be a, quote, pause in the fighting in Gaza to enable the release of hostages. Uh, This is interesting. The lower parliament of Bahrain has announced Bahrain is severing all economic ties with Israel. This is on top of a bunch of South American countries, which announced that a couple days ago, like Colombia, for example, and some others. Bahrain, by the way, I think the first signatory of the Abraham Accord. So that's very, yeah, that's very interesting and noteworthy. Um, An Israeli airstrike hit a residential building in the Burej refugee camp in Gaza, killing at least 15 people, according to Gaza's civil defense rescue organization. At least 195 Palestinians were killed in two refugees of Israeli airstrikes on Gaza's Jabalia refugee camp on Tuesday. And actually, my understanding is they, they bombed it a third time as well. So there was the first bombing, and then we learned of the second bombing. Now I read three. Uh, the UN Human Rights Office said Israel's airstrike on Gaza's Jabalia refugee camp on Tuesday amounts to war crimes. Uh, the scale of tragedy in Gaza is, quote, unprecedented, the commissioner general for the main U.N. agency in Palestine has said. 400 people holding foreign passports are expected uh, to be released through the Rafah border crossing. More than 20,000 wounded people. This one really got me. More than 20,000 wounded people are still trapped in Gaza City under the rubble, Jesus. according to Doctors Without Borders. Wow. Um, then they go on here to say, this is the Guardian, by the way, 18 Israeli U.S. soldiers, or Israeli U.S. soldiers, <laughs> this funny Freudian slip, 18 Israeli soldiers have been killed amid fierce fighting in Gaza. Um, Thai officials held direct talks with Hamas, and Hamas assures them that the Thai um, hostages will be released in due time. And then get this, guys, the only cancer treatment uh, hospital in Gaza is now out of service because it ran out of fuel. So I know that's a lot to digest. I just threw a lot at you. But Omar, why don't you take it over from here and tell us where you think this conflict is at and where it's going to go from here? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the word may be jarring to some people listening, but really there is no other way to describe it. What Israel is engaged in right now in Gaza is a massive campaign of terrorism. That really is the only way to describe it. They're engaging in mass indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas. They have killed, as you've mentioned, thousands upon thousands of children, obliterating entire families. Just multiple generations of the same family are are being lost left and right. And we have a situation in which U.S. policy is to cover for this massive campaign of terrorism in the name of fighting terrorism, you know, ironically. And what is even more distasteful than the way Washington is dealing with this, we all expect politicians to not particularly have moral considerations as the highest thing on their plate. But we think of media as the arm that's supposed to hold the power uh, accountable, power Mm -hmm. accountable. And unfortunately, the way mainstream U.S. coverage of this issue is, is effectively providing cover for these atrocities. They have decided that the Israeli government is the protagonist, Hamas is the bad guys. And if they're ever going to mention Palestinian civilians, it's always in the, oops, they're caught in the middle, rather than talking about Israeli war crimes in the way that they should be talked about. This is a government before this crisis, not just here, is an apartheid government 
committing the crime against humanity of apartheid, according to every major human rights organization in the world, including Israeli organizations, that's the starting point, engaged in an illegal occupation over Palestinians. And they fundamentally, their policy is why we are here in the first place. Their policy sustains a dynamic in which violence is inevitable. So whether you're looking at who started this, there is no question that Israel started this by definition as an occupying power. And who's doing worse? Nobody is committing atrocities on the scale that the Israeli government is committing. And yet, what we have right now is a campaign of manufacturing consent for support for Israeli atrocities. And it's absolutely unspeakable. Uh, uh, Chris, I want to bring you in in a second, but just to buttress your point real quick, the numbers with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they in a year and a half of hostilities, they haven't killed as many children as Israel has killed in three weeks. Yeah. So not even by the way, it was 480 something children for the entirety of the first year of Russia's bombing of Ukraine, which everybody understands was indiscriminate and included so many war crimes. The rate at which Israel is killing Palestinian children today in Gaza is more than 100 times more. That's the rate at which they're killing Palestinian children at over 1,000 per week. It's just, it's, it's insane. It is borderline genocidal violence is what we're witnessing. And again, you wouldn't know this watching mainstream American media coverage. We talk about it as if it's incredibly casual and it's just, it, it's what happens in war and we're moving on. But U.S. support is the reason why Israel is able to maintain and sustain that level of atrocities and nobody's challenging it adequately besides independent programs like yours, which I'm seriously grateful for and, and the voice and the platform that you provide. Well, That's and very I, kind. I appreciate that. And I mean, I do think there really is no way to put a silver lining on any of this, but the fact that you see younger generations which don't consume the TV uh, manufacturing consent propaganda, and they have a very different view of this conflict is at least something to be hopeful for the future about. I wanted to get you, I wanted to go through some of those prominent, you know, talking points mm-hmm. that you hear from the defenders of these atrocities um, and get you to, you know, give your response. So first we have Ben Shapiro, who says, if you say that you don't understand the moral difference between one, Hamas murdering babies, raping women and killing them, beheading men and kidnapping hundreds, and two, Israel telling civilians to leave, killing Hamas members and hitting civilians because Hamas keeps them there, I don't believe you. You understand the difference. You're lying. Your response. Honestly, Ben Shapiro is probably one of the most intellectually vapid people and still has the speaking style to give you the impression that he's making really good points and none of it would stand to scrutiny. And if you can ever get him on the show, I doubt you could. I'd be more than happy (laughs) to be here and respond to all of those and, and, and debate every point of this. Look, ultimately, Ben Shapiro's position right now, in the name of being upset with a terrorist organization that is holding hostages, You know, what he's saying on top of everything that you've just said is that this, what's happening in Gaza is going to continue until Hamas complies with Israel's demands and surrenders and whatever. He's effectively describing a situation in which the Israeli government and military, which in my view, the biggest terrorist organization in all of Palestine and Israel, holding a captive population in Gaza hostage and murdering their their children by the thousands every week until you comply with their demands. Again, there's no other way to describe it apart from utter and sheer hypocrisy that he is supporting literal hostage-taking and terrorism against civilians at a scale that Hamas has not even come close to. And he's presenting this as a moral difference, that we should know the difference between this and what Hamas is doing. It's, it's yeah, it's and honestly beneath. Just for me to take a stab at that one as well, the idea that he pretends like Israel is not targeting civilians on purpose is absolutely laughable. They announced early on in the conflict a total medieval-style siege on over 2 million people. That is collective punishment by definition. 
after that, any conversation about, oh yeah, we're looking out for the utter nonsense. We know you're not looking out for the civilians. You announced it. And there's top Israeli officials saying there is no distinction between Hamas and your average Gazan. And so it's just not true when he acts like we care about civilians and they don't. You definitely do not care about civilians and they're copying the playbook of Hamas. Yeah. And just, just to that point, Kyle, the when you look at the breadth of the statements from Israeli leaders talking about this, right? We're cutting off all water and food and electricity yep. to the entire population because there are human animals. The Israeli president saying there is no such that the entire society, a Palestinian society is responsible for the acts of Hamas. Multiple people saying we don't care about accuracy. Our, our focus right now is on causing as much damage and destruction as possible. And yet you have U.S. officials <laughs> jumping in to gaslight us by saying, no, 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 Israel Targeted. cares about care the laws about of it. war yeah. and international law. They're trying well, like, to avoid. We hope they'll casualties. follow the laws of war. It's like you know that they're not. Yeah. They're so not doing stop it. Stop hoping. Like yeah. do something about it. Yeah. So to that point, let me give you a few more. Since mm -hmm. we move beyond the point where they can really pretend like that they're not targeting civilians, I mean, the the um, bombing campaign on the refugee camp was kind of a breaking point for that mm -hmm. talking point. So, Even Wolf Blitzer was shocked. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so let me give you some of the responses now of why this is still okay. Number one from the IDF. Well, this is war. That's yeah. war. Yeah. That's Very war. convincing. Thank you. Um, the the other line that you get is basically, you know, similar to what Isaac Herzog was saying. Like, there are no innocent civilians. You had Alan Dershowitz who said the citizens of Gaza are supporters of Hamas. Um, you had Brian, Representative Brian Mast. He's the Republican who wore the IDF uniform, by the way, in the halls of Congress. He says, I think when we look at this as a whole, I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians. Jesus. I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi <sighs> civilians. And this is very much in line, too, with the Netanyahu government's rhetoric about how this is our Pearl Harbor. These are Nazis. There was a leak to the New York Times about how behind the scenes um, U.S. officials were sort of horrified that they were just totally casually like, yeah, you, the way you guys bombed Hiroshima, that's like what we see this as being in line with. So what's your response to those arguments about why this bombing campaign is okay? Yeah, so many. I mean, with that one comparison from the congressman in Florida, literally for him, the word Palestinian and the word Nazi are equivalent. That is what he's suggesting. I mean, yeah, this that's correct. is utterly dehumanizing of an entire people. And look, fundamentally, they don't believe what they're saying because if these were quote-unquote terrorists that are hiding in a major Israeli city or Correct. a major American city, yep. they would not be so callous about the idea that you should just go in and carpet bomb Tel Aviv or New York to try to find some people. They would understand that that would be an intolerable atrocity and they would never do it. So it is incredibly, again, you would have to view human be Palestinians as less than, as not equal human beings in order to justify these kinds of atrocities. Um, and talk about them so casually. That is that is fundamentally the driving motivation, I think, um, in all of this. And also critically, the idea that Palestinians are responsible for the actions of Hamas or whatever else is identical to the logic of somebody like bin Laden, mm -hmm. who says, right. if your government does something terrible in your name, then the entire civilian population is legitimate targets. And again, watching otherwise sane, sensible, respectable people is the impression we want to get, echoing the exact same logic that somebody like bin Laden would use to justify 9-11. Or that Hamas would use. Yeah, Hamas to just use that logic. Israeli a, a poll just came out. 83% of Israeli uh, citizens said, we shouldn't care too much about Palestinian civilians. So by that logic, are any of them fair game? Right? 
Like, that's the argument, right? And of course, it's not on one side. It shouldn't be on the other side either. Yeah. It works in one direction. Um, let me give the, the liberal uh, framing now. Mm -hmm. now oh, that, God. You know, this is even more dishonest than yeah. the other one. <laughs> right. Now, it's undeniable, like, the mass numbers of kids being killed and women being killed, et cetera. They feel like, okay, we got to say something or we got to call for something. So instead of calling for what they actually should of a ceasefire, we have the president and Blinken and Bernie out there saying we need a humanitarian pause. What's your response yeah. to that? It's honestly, in a way, it is more distasteful to me. If you're just open in your racism and disregard for Palestinian life, that's one thing. I can just appreciate that you're an adversary through and through. But people who feign concern for Palestinians, while at the same time calling for stop murdering their children for just a little bit, let's see if we can get them some water, and then please carry on murdering their children is And we'll give you the bomb shocking. too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with, with uh, our full... Not just funding, but protection as well with the U.S. positioning warships off the coast to try to warn regional players not to intervene. The U.S. posture is if you try to stop this ongoing genocide, we are – you're going to face the military wrath of the United States. That is the implication of the U.S. posture. And yeah, it's it's utterly shocking and it's deplorable, uh, really. Let me just interject for one yeah. second because I find this fact fascinating. Drake – Angelina Jolie and 55% of Republican voters are to the left of Biden and Bernie on this issue. Yeah. Because they want— Two-thirds of the American public wants a ceasefire. Right. 80% mm -hmm. of Democrats want a ceasefire. 55% of Republicans. And you have the Biden administration calling those who would want a ceasefire, you know, they sort of kind of compared them to like the Nazi, neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. And they also said that those calls were, quote, repugnant. Yeah. So that's where we are. Um, the last one I'll throw at you— this is like the Piers Morgan question that he loves to ask all the, the Palestinian supporters, which to his credit, he's had quite a number on. Um, well, what would you do? You know, you're dealing with a terrorist organization in their original charter. They say want, they want to wipe Israel off the map. What else could they do? Yeah, look, the fundamental problem with that question is the arbitrary starting point. Yep. What would you do to a particular incident that happened October 7th as if things were normal on October 6th? On October 6th, for from the beginning of the year until before this attack, Israel had killed hundreds of Palestinians, including dozens of children already. Somebody may look at this and go, what is Hamas supposed to do? How would you respond to that? Right. Nobody yeah. would even ask that question. Nobody would entertain the idea that that right. would legitimize the Hamas response That's to literally decades of Israeli atrocities. But we take it as a given that Israel has no choice but to commit these massive atrocities as a, as a response. The obvious response is... You need to get to a point in which you resolve the underlying problem that creates a situation in which violence is inevitable. When the ANC in South Africa during apartheid was setting off bombs and in many cases killing civilians, the obvious answer when somebody says, what are we supposed to do? You end apartheid. You create a better and more just world. And then you do still bring people who are responsible for individual crimes uh, to justice. You still hold them accountable but you certainly don't engage in this massive indiscriminate bombing and kind of war crimes um, that Israel is engaged in. So honestly, if you want to deal with this immediately, the range of options going from the systemic of solving the fundamental problem of Israeli apartheid, understanding that Palestinians are equal human beings who deserve the same freedom and dignity and human rights that Israelis enjoy is the obvious big picture answer. But on a more narrow point, if you want to argue for the return of Israeli hostages in Gaza, or you want to try to hold individuals responsible for the atrocities they committed, this is the absolute worst way to do it. 
everything that Israel is doing is putting the lives of hostages at greater risk. They don't know where they are in Gaza. And so when they're just engaged in this kind of bombing campaign, you are risking killing the very hostages and, that you're claiming that you want to try to rescue. And you're creating more terror. Absolutely. I mean, there is no way that this is in the long-term interest oh. of Israeli security. Honestly. Like, you have a little kid whose parents just got blown to smithereens along with 18 other members of their family. Like, what? what kind of politics the next do you Hamas think they're going to have that's right. when they grow up? And, and, and that's not speculative. That is no, literally sure. how we got here. This, yeah. is, this is the trajectory of, you know, during a time in which Israel had pretended effectively uh, in, in the mid-90s to be genuinely interested in granting Palestinians a state and, and giving them independence and so on, turned out to all essentially be a, 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 a joke. They kept entrenching the occupation more and more. But support for Palestinian violence against Israelis during that period had plummeted very, very significantly. Mm. People don't have that kind of support for a violent action when there is hope for a better future. And Israeli policy robbed Palestinians of that hope, creates the kind of misery and despair and this craving for vengeance that actually produces this violence. And that is exactly the blueprint uh, that we're on right now with current Israeli policy. Yeah. I, I also find it very bizarre that everybody seems to acknowledge and admit casually, including top Israeli officials, that, oh, the Hamas leaders are in Qatar living a cushy life. But then nobody says, well, hold on now. Then why the hell are you bombing the crap out of Gaza? Yeah. Right. Why not pay off the Qatari officials and go arrest the Hamas officials and try them at the International Criminal Court or something? There's like even in a, with a hawkish response, it's like, OK, you pay off the Qatar officials, you go send special ops to take out the top Hamas officials. But you've killed now 9000 Gazans yeah. who didn't do anything here. So I just find that disconnect really weird that they all admit that the Hamas leaders are in Qatar, but they're still bombing the crap out of Gaza. Yeah, I was thinking about that when, um, you know, the dude who's the head of Hamas was just on TV. Like, yeah, we want to do October him. 7th over and over again. And it's yeah. like, this motherfucker is sitting here in a TV studio, perfectly safe and sound. Yeah. Like, uh, why aren't you concerned about him? But yeah. it's because all of the rhetoric about we're trying to get Hamas, we're trying to eradicate Hamas. I mean, first of all, we know Netanyahu has been the greatest friend to Hamas that has probably ever lived, number one. Number two, I mean, they're leaking. I'd love to get your reaction to this, like the plans of what they want to do afterwards. Mm -hmm. And they're affirmatively saying, like, we would rather have Hamas in place that allow the Palestinian Authority. And because now that has other problems, but because we can't have this unified West Bank in Gaza, that would yeah. create the possibility of a Palestinian mm. state. So they're not serious about eradicating Hamas. The yeah. only thing that this serves, as you said very clearly and very accurately, Omar, is as a campaign of mass terror and retribution. And unfortunately, you know, Netanyahu, he's in, he sees his political asses on the line. You know, Israelis are outraged at him because he failed to protect their security, which was like his whole thing. But, you know, they want that revenge. They want that retaliation. The numbers are clear. They don't really care about civilian life. And so his political interest is in just giving them what they want. Yeah. And I, I don't think that Netanyahu has an end game here. They don't know what they want. Right. The fantasy is for Netanyahu and for his extremist right wing, openly racist coalition is to drive Palestinians completely out of Gaza. Mm -hmm. It's not clear whether that's going to be feasible because there is very significant Egyptian opposition to it and some American opposition to it as well. But short of that fantasy, whether they manage to play it out or not, in the meantime, they don't know what they're supposed to do. They know that the goal of eliminating Hamas from Gaza is an extremely, extremely tall order. It's not possible. Yeah. It's it, not possible. And again, as to, to the point that you were making earlier, Crystal, you are creating the next generation of Hamas militants. It's not a finite number of people that you right. can just kill and be done. You are creating people who have allegiance to that ideology by the intensity of the atrocities that you are committing. And because they don't have an end game, they are settling right now for just massive air bombing campaigns 
until they can figure out what their plan is supposed to be. I don't think they know what it is. But in the meantime, what, what they do know is that Palestinians have to continue dying. And that is what I've settled on so far until they figure out a plan. Mm. So um, this is really having an impact, but putting aside the moral conversation and the ethical conversation, this is really having an electoral impact on Biden because he's already hemorrhaged 11 points with Democrats. So young people are now fleeing at a very fast clip. And then you also have Muslim Americans and Arab Americans who are fleeing very fast. And just the other day, I don't know if you saw this, Kamala Harris comes out and announces the country's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia, yeah. to combat a surge of hate in America. <laughs> what's your what's your reading on this? To me, it reads very, very cynical, where it's like, instead of stopping, you know, supplying Israel with bombs so they can do a genocide in Gaza, it's, it, here's a committee we put together yeah. to say hate is bad. What, what's your take on this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's precisely as you describe. And honestly, it tells you how condescending and how little they think of the American Muslim community that they think throwing them this bone right. is going to make them okay with the fact that the U.S. is facilitating the slaughter of Palestinian children in Gaza. It's, it's mindless. It's definitely not going to work. But that has been a longstanding effort of the Democratic Party. They are trying to contrast themselves from Republicans by saying, oh, no, no, we're welcoming. We're, you know, you know, they hate Arabs and Muslims and whatever. That's not how we are. We're inclusive. But when it comes to this particular foreign policy issue, there isn't much daylight between Republicans and Democrats. They're right. all in favor of unconditional military funding for Israel, unconditional diplomatic support through endless UN vetoes to make sure Israel can never be held accountable, not at the International Criminal Court, not at the UN, nowhere. That is their standard policy. And they keep trying to compensate by ensuring Arab and Muslim Americans that they're inclusive and welcoming and love us. But it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a joke and it's not never going to ultimately relieve them from the moral burden of knowing that they are responsible. Israel would fold instantly and backtrack from the current track that they're on if Biden were to have the political courage to say what he must know deep in his heart, that what is unfolding right now is, is an unspeakable atrocity that should not be allowed to continue. And yet all you have in Washington is moral cowardice and this kind of complex political calculus trying to figure out what's the best thing to say and what's the best thing to do mm -hmm. for, for a re-election campaign. Right. But I think the numbers that have, that have come out in recent polling are showing that drastic decline that has to spell bad news for Biden. Maybe he'll reconsider something or the other. Yeah, to your point, first national poll of Arab Americans since the war in Gaza began shows how deep that sense of betrayal goes. This is from Time magazine with only 17 percent of Arab American voters saying they will vote for Biden in 2024. That is a staggering drop from 59 percent in 2020. Now, what the Biden White House is saying, Omar, and I'd like to get your reaction to that, is like, they'll get over it. They'll get over it. You know, the election's a long way away. We'll remind them that yeah. Trump is really bad and he's out there talking about a Muslim ban and he gave Netanyahu everything yeah. he wanted when he was there. So as much as you're not happy with us and we get it, yeah. those memories will fade and we'll use Trump and we'll get you back. Look, it's, it's funny because it's a little bit reminiscent of Israel's attitude towards Palestinians, of driving them out of their homes and pushing them into refugee camps. And the attitude is... Oh, in a couple of generations, this will be like this never happened. There is no cost to it. Mm. And what Israel has experienced directly with Palestinians is that generation after generation, people's commitment to their homeland only increases and their resolve increases. And I think something similar is happening here. This delusion that people are going to get over this, um, it's, it's honestly borderline laughable. There is no question that Trump is worse than Biden on nearly every issue, including this issue. Mm -hmm. And 
I was one of the people for whom the calculus of the lesser of two evils really resonated with me. And I was out fighting with people on the left about the necessity of taking Trump out of the White House and making sure that Biden gets in because harm reduction is real and meaningful and important. Genocide might be a line too far. I can't imagine myself, if this continues down this path, being able to cast a vote, even though I understand that Biden is preferable than Trump, yeah. preferable to Trump in many ways. This is a line too far. Palestine, even before this, has always been described as the wound that never heals in the heart of the Arab world, in the Arab American community, in the American Muslim community. And witnessing this massive escalation in the violence that we're witnessing right now and just the utter massacres that are being committed with Biden's support, I can't imagine people are going to, go to, are going to get over this. I don't, I don't care how much time goes on. This sits and resonates with people, and it is driving a lot of distaste. I don't think it's going to translate into support for anybody else necessarily, even though there are candidates beyond the two-party duopoly who would offer something better. Um, it's certainly going to make a lot of people sit home rather than turn out to the polls and, and try to cast a distasteful decision like this. So everything that I've seen uh, recently now reminds me of the post 9-11 period here in America, where there was this real sense of like, shut your brains off, all emotions, retaliation, retribution, revenge. Uh, we don't care about the details or the specifics, just go bomb somebody. And so we had the war in Afghanistan in 2001, 2003, they built up the case for war in Iraq. We went to war in Iraq and we all know that story. And every, you know, you had all these TV shows that were basically you had to portray Muslims as the bad guys. And it was all it was a very like it was became part of the culture and spikes. Uh, there was a spike in hate crimes against not just Muslim Americans, but also like Hindus and Sikhs and yep. like basically anybody with a brown skin. There was a, a spike of, in hate crimes against them. Um, well, it, it's my contention that now we're looking at a very similar thing. And of course, not only happening in Israel, where the poll numbers are astonishing over there with what they're doing, but also here in the U.S. So and this is so I'm going to tell you something Jesse Waters said on Fox News. This is something I don't think he could have gotten away with this uh, a year ago or two years ago, because this is uh, he said this quote. I want to say something about Arab Americans and the Muslim world. We've had it with them. Like. Do you agree with me that this is now the same post 9-11 hysteria? Do you think it's worse? T tell me your thoughts. I feel that it is currently worse. I could be misremembering. I know that it's been a long time since 9-11. Um, I've experienced directly a lot of the negative effects of the post 9-11 environment. Um, I was making sandwiches at a subway and a woman came into the subway and demanded that I get fired for my job. Oh my so, God, you know, Jesus dangerous Christ. And you never know what I could be putting in the sandwiches or, or, or whatever else. <sighs> wow. Um, we bought a house shortly after 9-11 and the neighborhood had a meeting about the fact that you had Middle Easterners moving into the neighborhood and what they were going to do about it and realized there was nothing they could do about it and so it was okay. But oh my God. It really was a horrifying climate. Then I remember the discourse, even in a grad school program that I was in, the extent to which people were openly talking about how torturing ragheads is okay oh in, a, my in, God. in a class setting with a professor sitting there and acting as if this is just a normal part of the Normal discussion. Yeah, it's, it was a horrifying climate and it was one that called for a lot of vengeance. And yet, I feel that the climate right now is substantially worse. I see it in, I've had two speaking appearances canceled at conferences that were canceled by the hotels that did not want to hold these events. Um, for an Arab-American conference and for a conference related to Palestine. This is happening all over the country in terms of those views are not allowed to be expressed. Um, I've seen it in 
media invites. And then literally at the last minute, they'd be like, so just kind of curious, like, what are your talking points? Oh, my go over God. your talking points mm. and say, oh, sorry, scheduling is really tight right now. It's clear that a certain point of view is not allowed to be expressed. That is the current climate that we have. And you have people going after college students about the way they've expressed their opinions. And, you know, I'm not here to defend all of it. I know that college kids can sometimes be a little bit dumb and foolish and excited with a particular moment and not express themselves really very eloquently. But the contrast between pro-Palestine students having the weight of university administrations and the ADL trying to weaponize law enforcement against them with anti-terrorism laws for the crime of having not condemned Hamas strongly enough. Meanwhile, students who are expressing open support for Israel's violence and terrorism against Palestinians, that gets a complete pass. There isn't anybody having a conversation about whether those expressions are okay. That's right. I think the climate is very scary right now, and I'm worried that if this situation ends up spreading into a regional conflict and if the U.S. is involved in a direct way, the climate domestically is going to only get much, much worse. And I'm, I'm very, very, very concerned about the direction in which we are domestically dealing with this. Issue. And just to buttress your point real quick, I had this to bring up to you as well. Top law firms issue warning to law schools and students, quote, we have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism on display on campus. And there's this long list of law firms. And of course, the question becomes, well, hold on now. What exactly are you considering anti-Semitism? Mm -hmm. Are you saying if anybody's part of any pro-Palestinian group, that, that, that that's anti-Semitic and that they can't get a job in law? Really? Is that what we're talking about here? So this is cancel culture on steroids, Crystal. Yeah, that's what that, this is. That the right is now like... They love it. Go cancel culture. You, exactly. That's right. Um, Glenn Greenwald, to his credit, has actually been calling out Barry Weiss, who was totally flipped on a dime, mm -hmm. which is like the smallest surprise of all time, <laughs> right? Um, the least surprising thing that has ever happened. But... I would like for you actually to tackle, this is something that ADL has been pushing for a long time, but this idea that being, um, that critiquing the Israeli government or being anti-Zionist is the same as being anti-Semitic. And I saw, what is his name? I always forget the name of the guy who's the head of the ADL. Anyway, he just came out and directly said, you know, this should prove to everyone beyond doubt that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Nikki Haley's been saying that too. Same thing. And yeah. I wonder if you can, can address that piece yeah. so people can understand. Look, I mean, they're, they're not coy. I don't know. I, I can go really deep on that one, depending on how much time we have. Go for it. They're, yeah. They're not coy about the fact that this is really a ploy to insulate Israel from criticism. That is effectively, the, the they're explicit about the fact that this is the purpose of this tool. This traces back to a definition of anti-Semitism that was created by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, one of the lead authors of this definition is a guy by the name of uh, Ken Stern, who said that this definition that conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism was designed deliberately to be very broad because it's intended for foreign data collection and they want to gather as much information as possible before analyzing it. And when organizations like the ADL and others started trying to impose this definition domestically on college campuses to say criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, the very author of that definition said, no, 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 you're misusing it. Mm. If you apply this domestically, you're going to stifle free speech. You're going to prevent pro-Palestine advocacy on campus. You're encroaching on students' legitimate right to free expression on a political issue. This is not what this definition was designed for. And yet, they're disregarding what the author is saying about his own definition and are insisting that this definition be applied and Congress tried to do it under Obama. The ACLU got involved, said, don't do it. This is mm. against free speech. Um, 
Congress backed off then, but then Trump came into office and imposed it through mm. uh, an executive order. And mm. that is basically a policy that uh, Biden is more or less continuing. And now we're seeing this significant expansion in pressure from groups like the ADL and many members of Congress insisting on creating that conflation between criticism of Israel and, and, and anti-Semitism. Well, and DeSantis did it too in Florida. He signed a bill. Sorry. Absolutely. Uh, well, I was just going to point, it's really important for people to understand there are many Jews who are anti-Zionist. I mean, and from the beginning of Zionism, yeah. there have always been Jews who were critical of Zionism or who had, you know, a different political ideology or had a critique of this version of Zionism. And let's define that for people too, just so that they understand. Like Zionism means an official Jewish state. So it either means official in the sense that it's like an ethnically Jewish state, so an ethno state, or a Jewish theocracy, so a Jewish religious state, or it could be a mix of the two. So the reason why this argument is absurd is because if you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, and I come out and I say, I'm against the government of Saudi Arabia because they have an Islamic theocracy. Everybody looks at me and goes, duh, Kyle, that's obvious. Of course you should oppose an Islamic theocracy, right? Now, is that Islamophobic of me? to oppose an Islamic theocracy or a caliphate, nobody in their right mind believes that. Right. Because it's not, it, I'm not against all Muslims because I don't want a state-sanctioned religion there, right? And it's the exact same thing with Zionism. It's the exact same thing. I'm not against all Jews because I don't want there to be a Jewish ethno-state slash theocracy, right? And this is, this is what people need to understand. They're, they're conflating on purpose to try to get you to stop criticizing Israel. That's the whole point. If yeah. I can just add one more piece to this, because there was a video um, that came out of Israel very recently of these ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionist Jews who were being beaten yeah. by, by the IDF yeah. in Israel. Um, so just so everyone's clear, like, being Jewish doesn't make you a Zionist. Being a Zionist doesn't mean you have to be Jewish. I mean, Biden came out and said, I'm a Zionist. Yeah. So, you know, these two things are not the same. You have to be able to critique a political ideology. You have to be able to critique a government. And this is also the genesis of all of these um, anti-BDS laws that have been passed. In, it's like 37 states or something crazy. Yeah. That's that ridiculous. Have these BDS laws Jesus. on the books. And um, I interviewed recently Nathan Thrall. Are you familiar with yeah. him? He just wrote a great book that uses the story Story, uh, a real and horrifying story of a man who lives in the occupied West Bank and what his life is like. He's trying to search for his son who was in this horrific accident and just his status as a Palestinian in the occupied West Bank makes it nearly impossible even just to find his son, the way this shapes his whole life. It has, I mean, it in a certain sense has everything to do with what's unfolding right now, but it doesn't like take a position on Hamas or talk about the Israeli assault or whatever. He's had many events for his book tour canceled. He had the UK police break up one of his main and like ban one of his main book tour events out of public safety concerns. He was supposed to speak, can't remember which state it was. And they were like, you have to sign this BDS pledge. And he was like, piss off. So Abby Martin won a lawsuit on that, by the way, just Georgia. to point out for everybody. Yeah. So they said you, they can't force you like, oh, you're not allowed to speak unless you say you don't support BDS. They can't. That's a violation of your First Amendment rights. Yeah. So, I mean, to your point about the climate, it really, really is quite astonishing how quickly the crackdown has come yeah. and how, you know, how uniform across the board it has really been. And 
Honestly, I mean, look, there's a contrast between Europe and the U.S. In Europe, there isn't a First Amendment. Right. They have laws against hate speech. They have all kinds of stuff where there is a lot of restrictions on people's right to free speech. And they've gotten so insane at this point that they're banning displays of Palestinian flags and all kinds right. of That's right. France banned all pro-Palestine protests. Yeah, yeah it's insane. It but in the U.S., you do have a First Amendment, and that's supposed to provide some level of protection, that you can dislike speech, you can smear it, you can do whatever you want with it, but you can't outright ban it. And what we're witnessing with these anti-BDS laws... I mean, just think for a moment about how fundamental the right to boycott is to American culture. The fact that it's part of the founding of the country, boycotting British tea, the fact that in the civil rights movement, there was the Montgomery bus boycott. And the Supreme Court has held over and over again that the right to boycott is a fundamental American right that is protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. This is a settled question. And yet, you have all these states right now that are passing these laws that are saying, by the way, not only that it's not okay to boycott Israel— but that it's not okay to boycott Israeli settlements. Right. Those are colonies yes. that are considered war crimes under international law mm -hmm. built on top of Palestinian land. That's right. And basically these states are saying if you boycott a foreign country's war crimes, <laughs> the government can punish you. And it's cases of people being denied uh, the ability to speak at a public institution or get a contract at a public college. Yep. And more in, in a more extreme case, it was Hurricane Harvey, I believe, in Texas where there was a town that was damaged by the hurricane, and they said if you want to apply for relief from the state for this hurricane, you had to sign a pledge that says you don't boycott Israel. Oh I mean, God. just That's it is yeah, that. That's yep. And it's obviously unconstitutional. The legal challenge is a little bit complicated because you have to have standing and be impacted right. in order to, to be able to pursue these cases. But the ACLU has successfully defeated a handful of these laws in a handful of states. I think CARE as well has been involved yeah. in some of those cases, yeah. Um, let me give you what they would say. They'd say, well, it's anti-Semitic because you are unfairly just singling out and targeting That's Israel versus yeah. other countries that also, you know, abuse human rights or theocracies or whatever. Why aren't you picking on them? Yeah. The fact that you're just picking on Israel is why you're anti-Semitic. Honestly, there's twofold here. One, it is simply not true that Israel is being held to a different standard. Um, the U.S. has well, sanctions. They, they may be held to a different standards. Yeah, in a different direction. direction. <laughs> that's, that's exactly the point, right? We have sanctions on all kinds of human rights abusers. We have policies against them. We have, you know, restrictions on, on all kinds of stuff. Israel is an exception in two ways. One, in the fact that they are the only modern apartheid state that are engaged in the longest unlawful military occupation in the world. That is just a reality. And you should be able to say that without somebody saying, how come you don't level equivalent criticisms of other countries because Israel's the only one doing it. And this, to your point, the second issue is the fact that the U.S. exceptionalizes Israel as a country that is above the law and above any rules, that the, Israel is the single largest recipient of, of U.S. military funding, exceptions like Ukraine and individual instances uh, not counting as a long-term policy. Nobody receives as much military funding as Israel. The U.S. used its veto at the U.N. more than 50 times to shield Israel from accountability which, to put it in perspective, is greater than the number of all vetoes cast by all other members, uh, permanent members of the Security Council, combined on all issues for that same period wow. from the 1970s until today. So we are saying this one country does not have to abide by any rules. And Americans having direct moral responsibility for Israel's actions because the U.S. funds them puts an additional burden for us to speak particularly on this one rather than running around criticizing China's human rights record or Iran's human rights records when the U.S. is not contributing to them. So yeah, what's I mean, the point and of by the way, if yeah. you ask if you ask somebody who's for BDS, hey, is it a good idea to maybe boycott Saudi Arabia over some of their uh, theocratic policies? You know what they'd say? Yeah, sure. 
Yep. Right? So the idea that like, oh, you know, you're unfairly I, targeting, it's like, what are you talking about? It always about? confuses me too, because that is the country that they typically throw on. It's like, oh, well, why don't you criticize Saudi Arabia? I'm like, have you ever... Talk like, to do a you lefty? watch our yeah. show? Yeah. Have you ever you talked have to a lefty? Listen? Yeah, exactly. Like, no one is reluctant to yeah. criticize Saudi Arabia for their, you know, Including human rights violations as well. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib right. and all these people who are being accused of having an anti-Israel bias. They've been incredibly outspoken Such about human rights abuses in, in Saudi Arabia. And that's right. And, the, and look, the thing about BDS is, like, wh- how do you want Palestinians and, and pro-Palestinian allies to resist because we all agree, look, if you use violence, particularly against uh, innocent uh, civilian populations, that's terrorism. We're all against that. That's bad. On the other side of the spectrum is sit there and do nothing and take it. <laughs> and then there's the, the more reasonable path is boycott, divestment and sanctions, use some economic pressure. Like you pointed out, there's actually different kinds of BDS. There's BDS against all of Israel. But then there's also the idea of BDS against the illegally occupied territories. Like this isn't really controversial what we're talking about here, Put a little bit of economic pressure on them to try to force them to get to the table and have some sort of a deal with Palestinians where they bring about Palestinian human rights. And like, if they say you're not allowed to do that, then their answer is you're literally not allowed to do anything except take it. And the list goes on, by the way, right? The idea is how are Palestinians supposed to demand their freedom? Well, you have to negotiate with Israel. They did for literally seven years of a so-called peace process. And Israel's response was to only entrench the occupation more and more. That wasn't a path for freedom. Then they engaged in, you know, they wanted to go to the UN, mentioned the UN, the, the US steps in to veto every resolution that tries to hold Israel accountable. They go to the International Criminal Court to try to get Israeli war crimes prosecuted. And the U.S. intervenes and puts pressure on the court, saying they'll cut off funding to the U.N. and whatever else if you, if you pursue these charges. Then they do these boycotts, and these boycotts get demonized and described as economic terrorism. <laughs> then people in Gaza in 2018 marched without weapons. Like an MLK to the thing. Fence, yep. mm-hmm. Demanding an end to the unlawful siege that is suffocating their lives. And, and they got the way, shot. They got, they got sniper shot. fire open at them, killing journalists and medics and yep. activists. So you're literally saying you have zero options and the only time you pay attention to them or, or acknowledge that they exist and when, is when there is an act of violence. And then suddenly the entire world is looking there, but not to say, okay, what did we do wrong? Is to say you're terrible, you should die and support war crimes against them. It's, it's, it's an intolerable situation and Palestinians literally have no method of resisting and demanding their freedom that the U.S. and Israel approve of. And we're just, we're, we're stuck in this situation. All right, let me get you to poke holes in the talking point in response to that one, mm-hmm. which is, hey, they were offered multiple deals in these negotiations and they said no. So this is on them. Yeah, this is... Um, and it's a narrative. Ben Shapiro special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. He loves to yeah. <laughs> We've already offered them everything multiple times and they sat down and walked away. <laughs> yeah. Literally never offered meaningful, genuine independence. Um, since, I mean, if we're talking, we can go back very early early in the history to talk about um, a lot of historical reasons why we got to the point that we did. But the modern two-state solution, understood as an Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories, only 20 per- 20% of historic Palestine, by the way, West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, those are the areas that Israel is obligated to withdraw from. So we're not asking them to do Palestinians any favors. We're saying abide Follow by international, international law, law right, yeah. and get out of these small areas. Palestinians get to have a state in 20% of the land. Israel keeps their state in 80% of the land. By every measure... This is an incredibly favorable position for Israel at the expense of Palestinians who were driven out of their historic homeland and that's not on the table. And Palestinians accepted that in the 1980s. They said, we recognize Israel and we want an Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories. It is Israel that said no and kept building more and more settlements. There were deals offered along the way. Not a single one of them comes even close to giving Palestinians a viable state. 
And people try to make a big deal out of the fact that Bill Clinton said to Arafat, if you don't accept this deal, it's going to be terrible and blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm sorry. If Bill Clinton's idea is that Palestinians should settle for tiny bandistans that are completely controlled by Israel and call it a state, that's up to him, but that is not a real state. And they're demilitarized, by the way, so Palestine doesn't actually get to act like a, a sovereign entity. There's water rights issues where, yep. you know, they don't control their own water. Uh, one of the negotiation processes, if I remember correctly, you could probably tell me what year it was, they handed Abbas... Uh, you know, a map that they proposed and then they didn't let him take it with him. He had to draw it up on a napkin yeah. and yeah. show people it afterwards. And by the way, in the midst of uh, the so-called peace process multiple times over, they would make uh, the Palestinian negotiators come through like military checkpoints and they would pat yeah. them down. And it was all the whole thing is, look, we're going to dehumanize you. We're, we're going to offer you the absolute less than the bare minimum. Yeah. And then if you don't take it, we're going to blame you. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the, the, the imbalance of power in these so-called negotiations is extremely blatant. Uh, Palestinian officials used to describe it, I think, fairly accurately as sitting down with somebody to dis discuss how to divide the pizza up that you're sitting on the table. They're eating away and they're saying, you don't get to eat. I'm going to eat in the meantime, but let's talk. Mm. That's, that's the dynamic. And to settle this idea of a generous offer, it is widely acknowledged that the most generous offer that Israel made to the Palestinians was made in the year 2000 um, at the end of the so-called peace process uh, in Camp David II. And Israel's foreign minister at the time, Shlomo Ben-Ami, said that had he been Palestinian, he would not have accepted that offer. Mm. Mm. So from my perspective, that settles the question and says there has never been a viable Palestinian state offered to Palestinians with meaningful independence and without Israeli control over their lives. That's, that's the reality. So call it what you want. Palestinians demand real and genuine freedom and self-determination. And that is the problem. That is what Israel objects to. And that's the reason why we've never had a successful peace process. So let me turn to a tiny sliver of breaking news, which is a little bit positive. Um, senator Dick Durbin just became the first U.S. senator to call for a ceasefire oh. in Gaza. Yep. Um, Poppy Harlow on CNN asked whether it's time for a ceasefire. And he replied, I think it is. Um, what is your sense of the political pressure that's building here? Biden was just, you know, a, a rabbi got into his fundraiser and was mm -hmm. pressing him for a ceasefire there. There are planned, um, you know, protests probably all around the country, but a very large one here planned in D.C. You see, obviously, the anger all around the world. Do you think that this will cause the political class here to change direction and actually compel Israel to stop the bombing and the atrocities? Yeah, this is twofold. There's no question that this pressure is building up right now very steadily in the U.S. In spite of what we just talked about, this wall-to-wall -wall political class in, in Washington, with very few exceptions, supporting Israel's onslaught, and despite the media engaging in this manufacturing of consent for the atrocities that are ongoing— still an overwhelming majority of Americans want to see a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to weigh on people. Just it is quite remarkable for Israel to be so blatant in the scale of it, uh, the atrocities they're committing and in the statements about these atrocities that they're able to overcome this propaganda campaign where people can still understand the reality and demand that it must come to an end. And I do think that this pressure is mounting, whether it's how long it's going to take for it to meaningfully impact Washington, I don't know. In general, even before this crisis, I think U.S. public opinion was moving in the right direction on this issue. Mm -hmm. The question was always, by the way, a majority of Democrats, even before this, favored restricting U.S. military funding for Israel because of Israel's human rights abuses. But you wouldn't know it looking at the Democratic establishment that this is what the base thinks. They're counting on the fact that this is not a primary voting issue for them, that you can go against the base and it's going to be okay because we're going to work on other issues that they care about more. Um, and that's a little bit of the problem here. 
And I think with these expressions of outrage that we're currently witnessing, the size of the protests everywhere, the locking down of uh, Central Station in New York by Jewish Voice for Peace, and if not now, the fact that this is an ongoing confrontation everywhere, including for Secretary Blinken when he was testifying, this is not going to go anywhere anytime soon. People's outrage is only mounting as the death toll of Palestinian children continues to grow. Um, I it's hard for me to predict when it's going to reach a point of actually compelling a major change in policy from Biden, but it is absolutely necessary and it is moving in the right direction. And I hope that we can get that change in policy sooner rather than later. So my final question for you, um, Yemen's Houthis announced that they've uh, jumped in and they were uh, sending drones and, and missiles to attack Israel, which remember when you first mentioned Yemen to me, I was like, that can't be right. They're not, they don't share a border. Like it's really far yeah. away. And you were like, no, it says here that, you know, Yemen launched a missile or whatever. And then yeah, they come to find long, out that long range. A couple days later, they were like, yeah, we're going to hop in this. And then there has been some tit for tat with Hezbollah um, in the West Bank. And, you know, there's all this talk about they, the U.S. media was trying to directly link Iran to the attacks, even though we have U.S. intelligence that says they were shocked at what happened with the Hamas terror attack. But putting all that aside, um, do you foresee like I don't I don't know how much longer this can go on without some real players stepping into the fray here. So yeah. I know that Nasrallah is going to give a speech on Friday. Yep. Everybody's, you know, waiting on eggshells. Like, is he going to say we're now officially, is he going to announce that Hezbollah is now officially in this and they're going to actually, and then we already know the U.S. has sort of hinted at this, if not outright said it, if Hezbollah jumps in, then the U.S., actually jumps in to back Israel and we are off to the races because then, you know, maybe even Assad in, in Syria and you have Iran, they hop in. Lord only knows what happens with, um, you know, China uh, and, you know, our allies, Israel would be our biggest ally. And then you have, I guess, European nations would fall in line and support the U.S. Like I don't know if they actually. World War One scenario. Yeah. And you then know, you have like, you know, Turkey and Saudi Arabia are in a weird position, right? Because the their populations overwhelmingly support Palestinians. And, and Erdogan said some very strong things against Israel in the process of it. Where does he end up? Where does Saudi Arabia end up? They've drawn a harder line now with Israel ever since the bombing campaign. They were saying before, no damage, no more damage done to Palestinians. And now that's changed to actually no 1967 border. Orders, Palestinians deserve a state. So are you afraid like I am that this that we're already at the point where the cat might be out of the what's the saying? Cat might be cat out of the out bag. Of the, bag. Yeah. the cat might be out of the bag and we're already spiraling out of control. Or do you think there's still possible at the last minute here to slam on the brakes and make it so that, you know, it, it all just ends right now? Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? Look, I mean, the way I envision it is it's three scenarios. A ceasefire is obviously the best one in order to put an end to this insanity that is extremely risky and has the possibility to spread. Unfortunately, the second best option, right, if you're thinking of it, is that nobody intervenes and Israel gets its way in Gaza, which is horrifying to think of an entire population in Gaza being obliterated and nobody doing anything. And then worst case mm -hmm. scenario, which is growing by the minute, is precisely the, the, the scenario that you described. Houthis in Yemen, that doesn't count for much. Saudi Arabia is huge. It separates Yemen right. from Israel. So that's not meaningful. The only party that can tip the balance of what is happening right now is Hezbollah in South Lebanon. and um, Biggest non-state militia in the world. Yep. Yeah. And they've given Israel a bloody nose in 2006 right. during the war in Lebanon there. They're extremely capable and yep. they can do a lot of damage. And if they decide to engage in this war full-fledged, um, that would really change the dynamics in, in, in a very meaningful way. Hezbollah right now is caught between a rock and a hard place. They 
present themselves as the defenders of the Palestinian cause, and they are facing enormous pressure to intervene given the scale of Israeli atrocities. So in order to hold that place that they currently hold in the hearts of the Arab and Muslim world, they have to do something. At the same time, Lebanon cannot withstand an all-out war mm, with Israel. Their economy right. is already in shambles. The Lebanese population wants to stay out of this. And so they would lose a lot of domestic support in Lebanon if they were to engage. Mm. And so I think Hezbollah wants a way out of this where they don't have to do it. So I think they would like to see a ceasefire so they can be put out of this dilemma. But in the absence of that ceasefire and as things continue to escalate, it'll be very interesting to see what Nasrallah says tomorrow, whether he gives an ultimatum to Israel or what that might look like. But they are in a very, very difficult position. And if they do engage, um, they have missiles that are capable of doing damage to some major Israeli cities not quite on par with what Israel is doing in Gaza, but right. close enough that it's something for Israel to actually be concerned about. And if Hezbollah jumps in, do you think Iran also hops in in a more direct way or yeah. would they s support Hezbollah in the fight against? Yeah, I think that would depend on whether somebody else besides Israel gets involved. I think that if, if the U.S. jumps in for whatever reason, then maybe then Iran. We are too. looking at a really scary scenario of a regional war. And think of how much damage was created by the Iraq war. Yeah. The number of people mm. killed, the devastation to the region. Iran is infinitely more powerful than Iraq, mm -hmm. and a confrontation mm -hmm. with Iran would have absolutely devastating consequences that are beyond anything that we had seen so far. And you had a Hamas delegation in Russia recently in Moscow. The, 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 uh, the possibility of this really becoming World One-like World in everybody wanting to stay out of the fight but seeing no option oh. but to step but to in, in. That's, that's the situation that we're in, and it all hinges on whether the U.S. can get a ceasefire out of Israel or not. That is literally the first domino, and absent that, we may very well find ourselves in a situation in which there is an incredibly devastating regional war at minimum and possibly a global war. That Fucking well, Biden, yeah. man. Holy shit. Jesus Christ, man. Um, wakey, wakey. One last one for you, Omar, which is you mentioned earlier, um, we, we were referencing this plan that came out of the uh, one of the Israeli government ministries that laid on a few different scenarios for like, what after this? Like, what happens in Gaza after this? And the plan that they identified as the most appealing was just out and out ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And the phases that they laid out seem to already be, you know, partially enacted. So first it was, all right, we'll push them out of northern Gaza. Of course, we know people were told to evacuate. Um, something like a million people had to flee to the south, even though they're still bombing the south. Then it was, and then we'll open up the humanitarian corridor. We'll push everybody into Egypt. And you were indicating that you don't think the Egyptian government will go along with it. Mm -hmm. You don't know that the Americans will go along with it. I did see a report, though, that Israel is floating using um, the Egyptians' considerable debt to try to pressure yeah. them and say, like, well, we'll get your debt canceled if you let in, you know, these Palestinian refugees. So do you think that that is a likely, you know, likely end state here of just like, you know, the Israelis get their way and it's complete ethnic cleansing in the end of any of any Gazans? There is no question that that is Israel's wishful thinking. That is what they would like to do in a world in which they get their way. That is exactly what their plan is. And they have a history, including with the so-called peace process, where the U.S. kept saying, hey, guys, stop building settlements. And Israel's go, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. And they just keep doing whatever they want. Right. So you have a situation right now in which everybody's telling Israel pushing Palestinians out of Gaza is not an option. And to your point, the first stages of this plan are effectively underway. Move everybody down to the south, demand they move, destroy the north. All of this is unfolding. And it might be a little bit of Israel going, we'll just do it anyway and see what happens with the last domino, whether we can apply enough pressure or not. I'm, as of now, I hard for me to imagine that the Egyptian government would be game for opening up the Sinai for Palestinians to go in. Um, 
for their own domestic reasons as one aspect. And second, just for this idea that helping Israel facilitate the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is incredibly an unpopular move. And they would do it simultaneously for the domestic reasons and for this idea of, you know, helping Palestinians be steadfast and remaining on their land and, and so on. But again, if nobody puts an end to this and the destruction and devastation makes Gaza literally unlivable, right? then we're looking at then they'll say, unknown. Hey, what other choice? What else could yeah. we do? We're looking yeah. at an unknown situation. See that now that's, that's, a, that's a crazy debate and discussion to have because you're exactly right. It's like if they open up the border, if they allow for it, they're helping Israel do their ethnic cleansing. Yeah. But if they don't, are you, are you sentencing all those people to death? Well, and that's the position they want to put them in. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, then they're just going to stay here and die. And it's on you. Why won't you open up and take all these refugees? I thought you cared so much about these people. I mean, you already hear this rhetoric all the time. And the alternative is rather straightforward. Ceasefire. Ceasefire now and treat Palestinians like human beings. It literally is out of the question for the Netanyahu government to see Palestinians as human beings. And so they're literally engaging in these insane atrocities with insane plans about driving millions of people off their land again. It's the alternative that the world has to be demanding is that Palestinians are human beings. They deserve the same freedom that everybody else enjoys. They deserve the same human rights that everybody else enjoys. And if you treat them as such and insist that they can have the right to self-determination, to have a future to look forward to for their families, that is all that is required in order to achieve longstanding peace. Peace requires justice and without it, we're never going to get to a situation in which Palestinians or Israelis can live in safety. It is so obvious, it is elementary common sense, People talk a lot about Israel having an intelligence failure by allowing this attack to happen. But for me, it's a more fundamental failure of common sense that you can hold millions of people hostage in an open air prison, devastate their economy, bomb them whenever you feel like it, no employment, no going in and out of, of Gaza, and think that this is an acceptable way to go on forever. It's not. It is inevitably going to lead to violence. Yeah. And the alternative is quite obvious. And the world has to demand an end to Israeli occupation and apartheid so we can experience a better future for both Palestinians and Israelis. It's the only answer. It's the obvious answer and it's the only answer. Um, Omar, it's so great to have you. Thank you so much. Made Thank things very clear for people. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's our fun. Thanks, man.